temperatures. I think last week it was 99 degrees here. Before we start with our message, I'd like to just pray for people. Uh, it's been mentioned that several had their basements flooded. I know that several are at home right now working uh, to empty their basements from water. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Father, as we gather together, Lord, to hear your word, we think first of those who aren't here, or those who have been working through the night, cleaning their own basements or family members' basements. We pray, Father, that you would enable them, Father, to care for the needs. I know that many of us have experienced this in the past, and we ask, Lord, that you would encourage them. I think particularly, Father, of Vern and Chris, of uh, Margie and Israel, and I know there are many others, Father. We pray for them, Lord, that you would encourage them, give them your special grace during this time. Father, I think of those who are on vacation. We pray, Lord, for safety for them as they travel, that you would uh, give them rest and renewal and bring them back here uh, encouraged and, and ready to serve you. Now, Father, as we live here in the city, we are reminded over and over of, of the safety issues, and we lift up our children, our teenagers, and pray, Lord, for safety for them. We ask, Father, that in the midst of day-to-day life, Father, that you help us to be alert. Father, that you would um, just bind the, the forces, Lord, that are continually obstructing uh, people's uh, normal process. And we ask, Lord, that just for, for protection. And finally, Father, I think of this coming Saturday and the celebration, Father, at Bethel Church with Salem Heritage. We ask, Father, that, that as we gather, Lord, that you would excite us and you would excite those who were members here years and years ago, Father, that we might be encouraged, Lord, by what you've done in the past as we look to the future, Father, to serve you. And Father, as we open your word, we ask, Father, that you would speak through me, and Father, that our hearts might be open to you. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name, and for his glory. Amen. If you will, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter, chapter 5. We'll be finishing up this, this study. Of course, the theme that we've been hearing over and over the last few weeks is that God has called us. He set us apart to be holy, to live holy lives in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of life. And I went through and I counted the words suffer or suffering 14 and 15 times. The words over and over like trials, uh, exiles, um, fiery test. So we see over and over that theme of, of persecution and suffering and in the midst of life and this ups and downs that we we to trust God. We've been exhorted that there's time to submit. We've been exhorted to submit to employees. We've been exhorted to submit to civil service agents, to government officials. We as uh, married couples have been told that wives are to submit to husbands. And over and over, we talked about submission looking different in different relationships. If you think about it, life is filled with relationships. And they're very, very important. Today, if you, as we look at chapter 5, it's all about relationships. It's all about relationships. 
Peter exhorts three groups within the church. First, the elders to shepherd the flock. And secondly, he focuses in on the young men. And he says, young men, submit to the elders. And then he turns to all the congregation and he says, humble yourselves before each other. And then after completing his exhortations to the church, he talks about the relationship of the believer to God. The most important relationship. And then, finally, he looks at our relationship with Satan and the conflict spiritually that we face. Most of you who know me know that I grew up down south in Alabama, raised on a farm. Not a big farm. Probably 80 acres. There were eight children. Mom and dad both worked. They came home and worked at the house. They make a huge amount of money, and so our farm was very important. I can remember in the mornings getting up, going and feeding the, the, the small baby animals that we had, or feeding uh, in the evening, coming home and feeding the, the cattle, sometimes going down to the swamp and driving the, the cows up to, to feed. We have responsibilities every day. I often tell Zachary and Jared, that I need to send them down south for summer to get them trained and disciplined. They laugh at me. But in the midst of that, as I look back, I think about the fact that daily we work together as a family. We live life together. We'd go to school, and I had two brothers that I think they hated each other growing up. They loved each other later on in life, but they fought all the time. But don't you dare let somebody at school jump one of them. Because quickly, they were on that other person. They were on that other person. When life, as we, as we were in school there, we knew that mom was in charge of the house. Dad was in charge of the farm. If anything happened with us kids and mom, of course, dad stepped in. Mom and dad were in charge. Now, I didn't do it, but my brothers would push the envelope, so to speak. We thought we knew better. We thought that we could slide by sometimes with things. But Mom and Dad, they knew what was going on. No matter what was going on, we knew that they loved us. There are times that Mom and Dad made mistakes. But they're still in charge. There are times that mom and dad made decisions that I thought, I wish that somebody else, I wish that mom and dad were like somebody else, that let their kids do what they wanted. I wish that we had the freedom. But mom and dad didn't give us the freedom to do some of the things that others did. I look back and I thank God that mom and dad were firm and yet loving. I can't remember the number of times that Chris and I have talked about mom and dad. I can't tell you how much I am thankful for mom and dad and for their work and their commitment. We've lived life together. It took all of us working together, all of us working together, those relationships of eight children, six boys and two girls. My wife, Chris, teaches and 
And she often talks about, I've got all these boys. Well, all those boys, a lot of energy, right? But in the midst of that life was that, that energy. And yet, those relationships were special. And we made it. And the parallels aren't the same, but there are some good parallels as we look at our church family. Just as my family live life together, there are good times and hard times. We as a church must live life together. Chapter 5, again, is all about relationships. Well, let's turn, if you've got your Bible open, to 1 Peter, chapter 5, and verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. In the opening verse, Peter establishes his credentials. He says, to fellow elders, even though he was an apostle, he's probably an elder somewhere, he says, to our fellow elders, and then as a witness of Christ's sufferings, which he knew that they were aware of, and one who one day shared with you in the glory. We see again Peter establishing credentials, being aware of relationships. He then gives the first of his exhortations to the, to the uh, church groups. He first instructs the the shepherds, the elders, to shepherd the flock in verses 2 through 4. In verse 2 we read, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not condemning, I'm sorry, not domineering over those in, char- in your charge, but being examples of the flock. Peter warns the elders there of three things, three mistakes, three sins to avoid. And he says he says you're to shepherd and give oversight to the church. Three things you're to avoid. He says don't shepherd under compulsion, but do it willingly as God would have you. Another way of saying that is don't shepherd out of obligation. Don't shepherd because no one else would do it. Don't shepherd because you can't get out of it. But do it with joy. Do it as God would want you to. Sometimes it's easy when no one fills in a slot, whether it's elder or whether it's teaching uh, kids or adult learning, it's easy just to fill in the slot and just do it under compulsion. And Peter exhorts the elders, don't do it under compulsion. Do it with joy. Do it with eagerness. Second warning to the elders. says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Shameful gain. What is that? Greed. Selfish motives. Dishonest, unfair practices. If we're honest with ourselves, greed... Self-interest is always knocking on the heart of our lives. There's always that temptation. And Peter says, don't shepherd because of what you can get out of it. The shepherd because of what you can give. 
don't shepherd out of greed, but for what you can give. And the third warning that Peter gives is not domineering over the, those in, in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Domineering, it carries with it the idea of forcefully ruling over. There's that harshness that's attacked, attached to it. There's no place for elders to rule with, with harshness or with threats or emotional intimidation, but rather will to, 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 to shepherd and to give oversight by example when possible. Not because of lust for power, but because of a desire to shepherd and to love. We're quickly reviewing those three exhortations to the elders. Elders shepherd, give oversight, not because you can't get out of it, but with eagerness. Not because of greed, but what you can give. Not because of lust for power and control, but devotion and love for your people. Shepherding is a serious responsibility, one for which elders are accountable to God. What Peter next reminds the elders of what their reward is for serving and serving well. He says in verse 4, he says, um, the reward for serving faithfully is an unfading crown of glory. An unfading crown of glory. And the crown here, going back to that time period, would, would, they would probably think about the, uh, we would think about the, the wreaths that were given in the early days with uh, the athletic events, the Olympics, or maybe it might be for them back then a, a Roman golden crown. But Peter exhorts the, the elders, don't shepherd for things here on earth. Don't shepherd for money or for wealth or for power or control. But shepherd because of the love for the people. And then you will receive a crown of glory. Our culture, and I will, if we're honest, our lives can be so caught up in the here and now. We all love, I think most of us here love sports. Not too long ago was the Winter Olympics. More recently, the Blackhawks winning. And even more recently, Spain winning the World Cup in soccer. I was there, I confess. I watched those games. I called people. I confess also that in January when the University of Alabama was playing for the national championship. I was watching that game. And Josh Flores was rooting for Alabama. Where are you, Josh? Yes. Not really. See, we get excited about life. We get excited about things here. And that's okay. But we need to remember what we're here for. We need to remember that there are things that are temporary. We don't go for these wreaths that wilt in weather like the last week in, in a matter of seconds. Peter says to the elders, shepherd. Shepherd in such a way that in eternity you receive a crown of glory that was unfading. Pray for our elders as a congregation and as 
as individuals, that our hearts would be set on serving as God would have us serve. Not for honor, not for wealth, not for power. After addressing the elders, he moves to the second group. And it's based on your version of the Bible, either to say to the younger or to the young men. It says, young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. Young men, be submissive to those who are older. I looked in commentaries, and, and I'll, I'll touch on it later on, but for the most part, I think most commentaries would say it's, it's addressing, focusing on the young male. I'm going to first to look at the whole issue of, of being subject. We've, we've talked about it several times as we've gone through First Peter, and um, it carries with it it's kind of a military thing, a lineup, uh, lineup under. Um, Peter has, has, as I said earlier, already told the, the believers, submit to the employers. In that case, submit to slave, slave owners, to the masters. Submit to civil authorities. Why submit to your husbands and now young men submit to the elders? It's definitely not this blind obedience. It's not practice here at Good News before we uh, bring new prospective members uh, to, to a vote to interview them. We talk about their, their walk with God when they came to Christ, their commitment, how much of a commitment they have. And one of the questions is, will you submit to principles of, of uh, biblical authority, submission to a biblical authority? And I always stop there, and I just kind of rest, and I talk about biblical submission. Because we know that there is submission sometimes called for by some leadership that's not biblical. We're not talking about that. We're talking about biblical leadership where the congregation submits to the leadership of those that God has placed over. This whole thing of young men being singled out, I think NIV and NASB uh, says young men, others uh, say younger people, but the, the whole focus I think is, is who's most likely to not submit in a church? Just because of the impatience sometimes of the younger uh, men, it might be because of that. It might be that these need to be reminded that uh, they're to submit to authority. Most commentaries that I looked at said that. Well, submission, just again in itself, it can bring up apprehension. It can bring up conflict. It can bring up confusion. And we've talked before about the abuse of this. We've talked about how um, there's a right and wrong way in understanding what that is. Good news, we don't, we don't believe that the church is a democracy. We don't vote on everything as a congregation. We vote on some things. Good news is not a demo- democracy. Same time, though, good news is not a dictatorship. In just a few weeks, we're going to be starting a series on the one another injunctions. And throughout the Bible, there are probably about 20 or so. Um, love one another. Forgive one another. Submit to one another. We want to look at that because we want to look at interpersonal relationships and dealing with that. In Matthew 2.6, there's a prophecy about Christ. And it says, O you, Bethlehem, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people in Israel. 
Again, talking about Christ who will be a ruler and yet who will shepherd. Alistair Begg states the need to find that balance in the ruling aspect, oversight, and the shepherding. And he says, when the ruling aspect is separated from the shepherding, there's tyranny. And when the shepherding is separated from the ruling, there's chaos. So both are in place. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Again, this doesn't mean blanket endorsements of every elder decision. Uh, there will be disagreements. Um, and our desire is that when there are any kind of issues that, that, that become with concern to the elders and talk. We understand that ultimately, that as elders, that we're responsible not just to the congregation, but to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the chief shepherd. And though our heart desire is to shepherd as Christ would, we acknowledge that we fail at times. And we do things inadequately at times. But I know the heart of our people. I've been in elder meetings when I've seen tears flowing down the faces of our elders. Everyone is to make hard decisions, tough decisions, decisions that we don't want to make, but decisions that must be made because people have chosen to turn from God's word. It hurts, and yet that's a part of being an elder. Please know that, that our elders love and care. At times people have repented. They've come back and embraced. There are times that others respond in anger with painful words. Sometimes in letters back to us. Sometimes to other people. Which is wrong. When I think of conflict, I often think about Proverbs 18.17. Proverbs 18.17 says... The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Or the message says, the first speech in court, in a court case is always convincing until the cross-examination starts. It's important as a body, as a family, that we have conflict, that we have issues that come up in a biblical way it's so easy to get some details and not have everything and make wrong assumptions. And it's our desire that, that we work toward good communication, good interaction as we deal with issues. It's important that we have our disagreements in a biblical way and uh, at the same time as we move on through, Peter moves next to giving instructions to all the church members all the church members and uh, it's in, in verse 5 it says um, clothe yourselves all of you with humility toward one another for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble clothe yourselves all of you with humility toward one another one version says be humble toward each other be humble toward each other Isn't it hard for us sometimes in our pride to admit that we're wrong? 
I can still remember when Zach was a little guy and I'd made a mistake. And he came to me and he said, I can't remember what it was about, but I still remember the feeling as a dad having to say, I was wrong. I was wrong, Zachary. And the little tight back then, it pleased him that dad acknowledged that, that he was wrong. It's hard for us as individuals sometimes to acknowledge that we've been wrong. And Peter says, be humble to each other. He exempts no one here. He includes church leaders and non-church leaders. It includes the young. It includes the old. It includes new believers. It includes old believers. All of us are to be humble. And this idea of clothe yourself, this the idea of attaching something to, to you, whether it's tying it on or some way attaching something to your body. In this case, it's talking just metaphorically about putting on humility. When I think of a definition of humility, I think of Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on your own interests, but also to the interest of others. It's an attitude that puts all this first. The motivation for us to humble ourselves before others is uh, right there in that passage. It says, because uh, God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I don't think there's any of us, myself for sure, that wants God to be opposed to me. God calls us to humble ourselves before each other. John MacArthur says that, that inseparably linked to and underlying a submissive attitude is a mind given to humility. In other words, if we're not humble, we're not going to be able to submit. James MacDonald, who's a pastor of this small little church, Harvest Bible Chapel, not far from here, he writes about his early years as a pastor at Harvest Bible Church. He was 28 years old. He was ready to go on vacation. He invited a lady to come in and give her testimony. She and her testimony gave some very unorthodox views from God's Word. And you can believe that many people got upset, including some of the elders, some of the leadership. Because he was gone, because he invited this lady, the congregation assumed that James McDonald invited this woman and he had her views. He had her views. Instead of considering that maybe he was just as upset, they questioned his own theology. I'll never forget here at, at Good News, Pastor Wayne had invited someone who had been a part of uh, our lives, Northside Gospel. He came in, he preached. And he preached things that weren't according to our doctrinal statement. And we immediately dealt with that. But anyway, going back, assumptions in the case with James McDonald led to accusations and suspicions. Um, because McDonald was on vacation, even though they didn't have the money, they flew him home early. McDonald writes in one of his books, he says, as they began to communicate their concerns, he says, I had to agree with them on some of them. He says, their comments helped me to see that, that I was still naive as a young pastor 
Well, after all the dust has settled, 12 of the original 18 uh, church planning leadership team had gone. The congregation went from 400 to 250 instantly. Among those who left was the chairman of the church. McDonald tried to reconcile and periodically through years he reached out and God was working in the hearts and lives of each of these men and on the deathbed by the, by the time that this gentleman uh, the chairman, ex-chairman was ready to die he had reconciled totally with the church and with James McDonald it's neat to read that McDonald writes that later, years later on today that the son of this man is now one of their best leaders at harvest. That's reconciliation. See, when real reconciliation takes place, it's not just between two people. It is in one sense, but it affects the whole congregation. It affects families. Interpersonal relationships, conflict resolution must be maintained. It takes a lot of work. Sometimes it's very painful. Sometimes it's very hard. Sometimes we feel like giving up. But we don't. Well, from humility before others, Peter moves to humility before God. In verse 6 and 7, we read, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at a proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. With God opposed to proud, it's wise for us to humble ourselves before him. This means bowing ourselves, our lives, our hearts to his word, but also it includes bowing before those twists and those turns in God's providence that comes our way and trusting our lives to him in the midst of confusion and doubt and questions. As we've talked about relationships this morning, I mentioned earlier, there's nothing more important, there's no relationship more important than a relationship with God. It's important that we trust him as we go through life. Trusting him is casting all anxieties on him because he cares for you and for me. I don't know what you're going through this morning. I know a lot of people are hurting with jobs. Some have jobs they're not sure they're going to have for long. Others have lost their jobs. Maybe it's a personal relationship. Maybe it's a son or a daughter that may be wayward. Or maybe it's a girlfriend or a boyfriend for those who are younger. Maybe it's health issues. Maybe it's just struggles walking with God. As we humble ourselves before God and trust ourselves to Him, He cares for us. I think probably the greatest barrier that, that we have of putting other people first and thinking of them as more important is kind of a legitimate concern human-wise. If I take care of them, Who's going to care for me? 
Who's going to care for me? God's Word says, when we cast our, our anxieties on Him, He will take care of them because He cares for us. So we're literally throwing our concerns, our problems on Him because He cares and He loves us. The passage says there, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that He may, at the proper time, exalt you. I just want to warn you here, this doesn't mean that if we walk with God, if we yield our lives to Him, that we're going to, at some point, get a job promotion. We might, but that's not what He's talking about. He's talking about an eternity. So this is not a promise for a new job or for new uh, honor in some sense. Chip Ingram, in one of his books about knowing God, writes about the fact that he was struggling with trusting God. He said that he had prayed, he had fasted, he had sought counsel regarding the next step in his life. Finally, it was to leave California, leave the church, leave his grown son, leave his home, leave the pastorate, uproot his 16-year-old daughter in the middle of high school and move to Atlanta to assume the leadership of Walk Through the Bible after uh, Mr. Wilkinson, uh, 26 years, had resigned. Chip Ingram says, I know what obedience looks like, but in this case, it didn't look very wise. It didn't look very good. Days after they had made a decision, yes, we're going to Atlanta, we're leaving California, Chip's wife's mother came down with complications and was in intensive care for 90 days and then died. Chip's home in California was discovered to have termites. Their car was shipped and was damaged from a storm, a hailstorm. Their furniture arrived before the new home was ready. Their refrigerator was dropped and had to be replaced. The economy bottomed out and donations that walked through the Bible dropped down almost 40%, putting the ministry in a crisis. Chip's wife mourned all these multiple losses while having two oral surgeries within two or three months. He says, it was the hardest time of my life. He said, I asked God, where are you? Is this the way you reward obedience? Have I made the worst decision in my life? Of course, eventually things settled down. God used him at walk through the Bible before he left there. He talks about the fact that his son he had left behind met his future wife, got married, went into ministry, not in that place, but somewhere else. His daughter, who was so concerned about changing high schools, flourished and learned so much about trusting God. Chip's suggestion in the midst of life of trusting God, he says, life isn't always easy, but God, in his wisdom, always brings about the best possible results for the best possible means, by the best possible means, for the most possible people and for the longest possible time. 
what seemed like a disaster and what seemed so unfair was God's sovereign hand working in Chip's life to bring out his highest and best for Chip. So what about you? What about me? What are we going through right now? Are we struggling? Do we feel like maybe some things are hard, it's unfair? Maybe as we look at life, it's depressing or impossible? What does it take for us to stop resisting and trust God? Because He's more than able. So in the midst of life, as we go through the ups and downs, we're to trust God. Humble ourselves before Him, even when it looks impossible. And the reason we need to cultivate these attitudes of submission, of humility, of trust in the Lord, is that we face a fierce and relentless spiritual opposition from Satan and from his demons. In verses 8 through 11, Peter looks at the believer's spiritual conflict with Satan. Let's read verses 8 through 11 together. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the lion, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by those, by your by brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever. Spiritual conflict with Satan. I think most of us are aware of that. I don't think, I don't think there's anyone here in this congregation that, that doesn't believe there's a real devil, and that they're real demons. I think sometimes maybe we aren't aware of his schemes. We don't see what he's doing. We aren't aware of how he is attacking. First, the passage says, be, be spiritually alert. Be alert. Be sober. Next, be vigilant. Be watchful. Watch out for sin in your life. Watch out for the attacks of the evil one. The reason for being alert is the danger of being attacked by Satan as he roars like a lion seeking to devour us. But we need to remember that God is stronger than the devil. Resist him, firm in faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Resist him carries with it that idea of um, being firm in your faith is like knowing that God can do it. God can take me through this. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee. Resist the devil, and he'll flee. The world is all around us. The flesh is within us. And the devil is against us. And yet, if we're in Christ, we have victory. We fight from victory, not for victory. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 says, For though we walk in the flesh, 
We're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take thought, take every thought captive. Every year I mentioned sports earlier. Every year the Super Bowl comes around, right? And every year for at least two weeks before that big game, the two teams opposing each other are practicing. And if you ever go in and watch them, they have their um, DVD going, they've got their, their plays of the, of the team, and they go back and forth, and they have their remote, and they back it up, you know, look at this thing again, look at this play again. So that when the point comes for the game, they know, they know what their opponent is doing. They know the plays. They know that he steps back three times. He's most likely going to throw it over here 70% of the time. Maybe 30% over here. They know the plays. They know the team. They have studied the team individually. Back in the dark ages, when I played football in high school, even then, we watched the team. We looked at what they were doing. We knew most of their plays. Sure, they could pull in a uh, a quick play here and there, but we knew them. On Super Bowl Sunday, these two opponents know each other. They've learned each other. Too often, too often, we're mediocre opponents of, of Satan. We know his schemes. God's given us his schemes. John says, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy we know that he is our adversary. We know that he's a slanderer. He's the tempter. He's an accuser. That he attacks us with false doctrine. That he directs governments. That he deceives men. He destroys life. He persecutes saints. He promotes divisions. He plants doubts. We need to remember, as believers in Christ Jesus, again, we have victory over Satan as he seeks to destroy us. And I can tell you at times, with, and, and, and you guys don't sometimes know what's going on, but sometimes it feels like that Satan is having a heyday in lives of people and marriages sometimes. And you can see that Satan is going around seeking to devour people to destroy lives, to destroy marriages, to destroy the body of Christ. God has given us His schemes. We, we can know them. We can be ready. We can be a worthy opponent. We need to trust God. Trust God to restore all this. We go through things where we, we may lose different things. We can trust that God will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish us. God is a God of hope, full of mercy and forgiving. Remember, chapter 1, He chose us. Chapter 1, chapter 2, to make us His people. Chapter 1 again, He promises protection. God is a God of grace. God is a God of hope. To Him, 
be dominion forever and ever. He's in control. He's sovereign. Isaiah 42, 42 says, When you pass through waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, and they will not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flames will not consume you. And remember, as we go through trials, and as we, and as we are turning to God, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction. We live life together. Peter has called us to live life in a loving way, serving our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to live life in view of God's judgment one day. We need to live life in view of turning to God in prayer, praying for our elders, praying for our congregation that we will submit to each other in humility, knowing that God is our strength and our hope, that we have victory over the evil one. We need to live life knowing that we need to deal with conflict in a biblical way. Do not give Satan a foothold in our lives. Remember, he's a liar. He's a murderer. He wants to destroy. And yet, we have victory in Christ. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for all that we have in Christ Jesus. We thank you that we can live life together as a body, as a family. Father, relationships are so very important. Sometimes, Father, it's easy for us to put aside things. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've called us to live together in relationships. Help us to be obedient to you, Father. We just ask, God, that you would go before us. And this week, Lord, that we might walk with you and serve you and live for you. In Christ's name, amen.